This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Fidelity, financial planning that moves with your life. Learn more at fidelity.com slash your goals. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSC SIPC. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, good afternoon. This is Tolu Olorunipa with The Washington Post. Hi, this is Amy Britton calling in The Post. This is Peter Jameson from The Washington Post calling. This is Post Reports. I'm Nicole Ellis, in for Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, October 16th. Today, the fourth Democratic debate, a diplomat at the center of the impeachment inquiry, and a D.C. drug lord returns to court. All right, let's begin. Since the last debate, House Democrats have officially launched an impeachment inquiry against President Trump, which all the candidates on this stage support. Senator Warren, I want to start with you. The question is, with the election only one year away, why shouldn't it be the voters who determine the president's fate? Because sometimes there are issues that are bigger than politics. And I think that's the case with this impeachment inquiry. It was the first question they all got asked because it's arguably the bigger story than the 2020 primary right now. That's Amber Phillips. And I analyze politics for the Fix Politics blog at The Washington Post. She covered Tuesday's Democratic debate hosted by CNN and The New York Times. And she was watching closely as the 2020 candidates were asked about impeachment. All of them got asked, do you think Trump should be impeached? All of them said yes. Uh, I think that the House will find him uh, guilty of Worthy of impeachment. Impeaching and removing this president is something that the American people are demanding. We have a constitutional duty to pursue this impeachment. We have to impeach this president. And then Joe Biden was asked about the origins of the impeachment inquiry and what his son had to do with it. The impeachment inquiry is centered on President Trump's attempts to get political dirt from Ukraine on Vice President Biden and his son Hunter. Having said that, on Sunday, you announced that if you're president, no one in your family or associated with you will be involved in any foreign businesses. My question is, if it's not okay for a president's family to be involved in foreign businesses, why was it okay for your son when you were vice president? Vice President Biden? Yeah, Joe Biden ducked this question like his life depended on it. Look, uh, my son did nothing wrong. I did nothing wrong. I carried out the policy the United States government. His son earlier in the day had given an interview on ABC News where he said, look, I showed poor judgment in serving on this board of a foreign company while my dad was vice president. If he were president, I'm not going to do that again. And, you know, I'm going to try not to trade on the Biden name. The eyebrow-raising line for me is when I heard Joe Biden say, I'm proud of my son's judgment, even though a couple hours earlier his son has said, I had poor judgment. My son made a judgment. I'm proud of the judgment he made. I'm proud of what he had to say. And let's focus on this. The fact of the matter is that this is about Trump's corruption. And then he quickly pivoted to what he wanted to be talking about, which is why him at the center of this? His talking point is it's because Donald Trump is afraid of me. And yes, I will beat him. He's going after me because he knows if I get if I get the nomination, I will beat him like a drum. At least one candidate on that stage that night who had said, not at the debate stage, but previously, uh, Beto O'Rourke, you know, I don't think I would let my family members serve on any any foreign boards. So there is some criticism within the Democratic primary about Biden's choices with the son. But I think overall, 
they're all holding hands in a sense of unity against Donald Trump that like he went after one of their own in ways that was unnecessary. Right. It seemed like a good part of the focus was off of Vice President Biden and onto Elizabeth Warren. And I'm wondering what the attacks were on Elizabeth Warren, because it really did seem like the focus had pivoted to her. I think that's absolutely right. I think, first of all, that should concern Biden, (laughs) that candidates aren't trying to attack him anymore. Donald Trump is, but the rest of the 2020 primary candidates seem to think Warren is more the dangerous candidate for them. And she is leading in polls nationally and in some early states as well. So the headline attack against her is, why do you support Medicare for all? when you can't say it would raise taxes on the middle class. You have not specified how you're going to pay for the most expensive plan, Medicare for all. Will you raise taxes on the middle class to pay for it, yes or no? So I have made clear what my principles are here, and that is costs will go up for the wealthy and for big corporations and for hardworking middle class families. Costs will go down. The struggle there for Elizabeth Warren is how to frame Medicare for all in a way that shows what people are going to pay and how it's going to change their lives, but also demonstrate that she's being honest about these big changes she's proposing. Like Pete Buttigieg made a point after Elizabeth Warren like failed three times to directly answer a moderator's question. He said, Well, we heard it tonight. A yes or no question that didn't get a yes or no answer. Therefore, you know, the moderates had an opening to say Medicare for all might not be the best idea if Elizabeth Warren just can't be straight with you. Look, this is why people here in the Midwest are so frustrated with Washington in general. Your signature, Senator, is to have a plan for everything except this. No plan has been laid out to explain how a multi-trillion dollar hole in this Medicare for all plan that Senator Warren is putting forward is supposed to get filled in. It seemed like moderate candidates came out swinging and had a lot of other issues that they attacked Elizabeth Warren on. What were some of those other big issues? So the moderates were really going after the underlying philosophy that Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders have about how they're going to provide all these big government programs from early childhood education onto student loan forgiveness onto free health care. Costs are going to go up for the wealthy. They're going to go up for big corporations. Elizabeth Warren in particular says, let's tax the rich. Let's tax the top like 1% of the 1%. They will not go up for middle class families and I will not sign a bill into law that raises their costs. Uh, She has a bunch of stats she throws out about how much money that would rain down on the economy. The moderates were critical of that. So candidates like To a lesser degree, Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg, and to a higher degree, Amy Klobuchar and Andrew Yang criticized that philosophy by saying, sounds great when you say it on the debate stage. How are you going to implement this? I appreciate Elizabeth's work. But again, um, the difference between a plan and a pipe dream is something that you can actually get done. Andrew Yang in particular had a really salient line where he said, a bunch of other countries that ascribe to your philosophies tried to implement a wealth tax. And a wealth tax makes a lot of sense in principle. The problem is that it's been tried in Germany, France, Denmark, Sweden. And repealed it. And all those countries ended up repealing it because it had massive implementation problems. Elizabeth Warren's response to that was, 
why are y'all trying to protect billionaires? And a bunch of them chimed in, even though it wasn't their turn to speak, and said, I'm not trying to protect billionaires. And Amy Klobuchar got a moment where she said, look. No one on this stage wants to protect billionaires. Not even the billionaire wants to protect billionaires. (laughs) And that was true of Tom Steyer. His first times on the debate stage, a climate activist and an impeachment activist. Uh, We just have different approaches. Your idea is not the only idea. So this is the first time we really see everyone going at Elizabeth Warren nonstop. And she is just sustaining constant attacks. And I'm curious to hear how you think she handled that. Yeah, that's right. She definitely got a pass in a bunch of other debates. But now we have this moment where Biden is fading a little bit in the polls and, you know, struggling to figure out how hard to push back on all the unsubstantiated Ukraine allegations. Bernie Sanders comes just having a heart attack and having had to pause his campaigning. Elizabeth Warren has ascended in the polls and hasn't had very much scrutiny. So she should have been ready for this fuselage against her. I think she seemed kind of surprised (laughs) that people were going after her. Her main takeaway that she wanted voters to have was, I know it's going to be hard, but Democrats have to have big ideas if we want to beat Donald Trump. So for the most part, Democrats are fighting it out basically on the same policy questions that we've had since the first debate. And I'm wondering, what do you think has changed, if anything has changed throughout these debates? On policy, it doesn't seem like it. They still have deep ravines between the moderates and the more liberals on big, big issues like health care and taxes and income inequality and even gun policy to some degree. On politics, I think last night's debate shifted things fairly dramatically. And what I mean by that is the candidates, almost all of them except for Elizabeth Warren, decided Let's go after each other. Let's do it. Like, at some point, I am a candidate and I see X, Y, and Z candidates standing in my way to get to where I want to be. I'm going to have to go negative. I think this debate underscored what the polls have shown us for a little while, which is that Elizabeth Warren is leading. At the Washington Post on the politics team, we hesitate to call anyone a front runner because who knows? (laughs) Things change by the minute at some point. I think this debate also underscored that Candidates who haven't vaulted into the top tier are nervous about that. That despite how open this field can be, it's also been pretty solid among the top three candidates. Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden. And I saw some nervous energy among people right below them. The Cory Bookers, Kamala Harris's, Pete Buttigieg's, and Amy Klobuchar's of the world going, oof, I don't do something now. I don't know that I don't know that I'm going to be positioned to have a strong showing in Iowa. Amber Phillips covers politics for The Fix. For the past week or so, I've been staring at Gordon Sondland and trying to understand his role as the U.S. ambassador to the European Union in this saga we're seeing unfold about Ukraine. Aaron Davis is an investigative reporter for The Post. So Gordon Sondland was one of a handful of U.S. diplomats trying to broker this agreement between Ukraine and the Trump administration to try to get the Ukrainians to issue a statement that said that they would fight corruption and specifically that they would look at this one energy company called Burisma, the energy company where Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, was a board member. 
And so many critics of, of this effort saw it as a really a proxy for trying to impugn the character of potentially Donald Trump's Democratic rival in the 2020 election. Someone and two other administration officials tried to cement that deal in text messages that have been handed over to Congress. And Aaron's been working on answering the questions we've all been wondering. Who is Gordon Sondland? And how did a businessman from the Pacific Northwest get so entangled in a scandal involving the president and the Ukrainian government in the first place? Well, Gordon Sondland declined to comment for this article, but we did reach associates of his longtime business partners, family members, friends, acquaintances. We really tried to get a, a portrait from every side that we could of Gordon Sondland. Suzanne, I can't believe things are so slow in Portland. We got a hold of this tape of a breakfast that was put on by the Portland Business Journal in 2016 that Gordon Sondland spoke at at length. My mother met my father in Berlin. They were both born in, in Berlin in the, uh, in the 20s. And so Gordon Sondland is a first-generation American. He grew up outside of downtown Seattle. Uh, we lived on Mercer Island, which was uh, a curious place to grow up because Mercer Island today has a reputation as being, you know, the wealthy enclave. Right. But... Uh, Back in the 60s and 70s, it had a very diverse, uh, you know, social demographic. There were some very wealthy people that lived there, and there were also some very poor people that lived on Mercer Island. And we were on the poorer side, uh, but everyone and the same And by his own account, so looked to these very wealthy families and wealthy kids he was going to school with emotion. and wanted to be like them. It sort of created, I'm, I'm going to get there one of these days. Yeah. And at a young age in his 20s, I had an opportunity to buy a hotel and was successful at one hotel and then another and another and became this magnet of boutique hotels across the Pacific Northwest. How did he end up a U.S. ambassador? So having been a very successful uh, hotelier, he was worth tens of millions of dollars. He had lots of friends who were millionaires. He would hold fundraisers in his home and invite lots of other millionaires and then bundle all of these donations into six and seven figure contributions that would get the attention of candidates running for office. He did this with Mitt Romney. He did this with John McCain. I was speaking with his wife last week, and she said, I don't know what you're into, but Gordon, all he does is politics. You know, this is his golf. This is his hobby. Big donations to presidential candidates in hopes of someday becoming actually, this was his plan. This was what he wanted to do was become an ambassador. In 2016, he was not backing Donald Trump. He was actually hoping that Jeb Bush would be the next Republican nominee and president. And so he had done this bundling effort for Jeb and had contributed hundreds of thousands of dollars only to then see Jeb have to bow out of the race. He decides to switch and backs Donald Trump. And one of the first things he does is contribute a million dollars to Donald Trump's inaugural. Right. And that made him one of the top 50 donors for that inaugural committee. Exactly. So that $1 million donation wasn't exactly enough to seal the deal in becoming an ambassador? For Gordon Sondland, it definitely was not, because in the course of supporting Jeb Bush and then watching Donald Trump just be a very different candidate on the trail than anybody had really seen. At one point in time, if you remember the episode where Donald Trump goes after a Gold Star family, this is the parents of a... Muslim American who had died in Iraq in the course of fighting for the U.S. His wife uh, 
if you look at his wife, she was standing there. She had nothing to say. She probably, maybe she wasn't allowed to have anything to say. You tell me, but plenty of people have written that. Uh, she, uh, she was extremely quiet and it looked like she had nothing to say. A lot of people have said that. That's where Sondland draws the line and puts out a statement says, my morals, my beliefs are so much different on so many levels than Donald Trump, I can't support him. And so that statement became a real roadblock for Sondland to become trusted by Trump. So Sondland had to, from what we can tell, call in every favor he had from the past decade of fundraising. Rents Priebus, the RNC chairman turned White House chief of staff, Stephen Mnuchin, the finance chair for Donald Trump, uh, who became the treasury secretary. And he continued fundraising through 2017. And Donald Trump decided he was on his team as much as anybody else's. In May of 2018, he nominates Gordon Sondland to be the U.S. ambassador to the European Union, a very prestigious, one of the top ambassadorships that the U.S. has. And he moves to Brussels. So he finally gets the appointment of his dreams as an ambassador. But does he continue to push and lobby and really align himself with the president? He definitely does. He had just spent this whole year trying to prove that he was not anti-Trump. So he was still in that mindset of actually trying to prove he was very much working on behalf of the president. We know that from people he had talked to. And we know that uh, as this began to unfold, this role that he had in Europe, one person told us he kind of became intoxicated by it. You know, this was a hotelier who was used to flying on private jets and having a lot of the trappings of wealth. But he was now an ambassador, having dinner with presidents, getting shuttled through European capitals and security convoys. This was a whole new level of excitement. And he really uh, gravitated toward it, liked it, and started to tell people he wanted to move higher. What we can tell is that he repeatedly told people that he didn't want to be just a figurehead ambassador, didn't want to just go to parties. He wanted to roll up his sleeves and get into it the way he did in business. And he thought the European Union was particularly one area that uh, his views aligned with Trump's. Sondland grew up in the Pacific Northwest as a Republican in a very Democratic-controlled area. He spoke about this uh, back during 2016. He said that by its nature, bipartisan politics was a quid pro quo. Always was. Uh, if a Democrat needed something from a Republican, you know, what's this for that? And he would tell a story of him being on the transition team for the Democratic governor in Oregon and having had a relationship with the George W. Bush White House. And so he would back channel and, you know, ask the White House if they could do something for the governor. And he said, well, the governor would always get something and the president would always get they something. Were, and um, They were done with sort of rifle precision. And there was always a quid pro quo. The governor would help the president with something and the president would help the governor with something. And it was very transactional. So he saw politics as transactional, which is very much the way we can tell that President Trump has seen a lot of his role advocating for the U.S. internationally. What's he going to get? And so I think what we're seeing here partly is a reflection of he might have had this understanding of politics domestically and through Republicans and Democrats as being transactional. That becomes a far more dangerous situation internationally when you're dealing with foreign policy. In this sort of vein of seeing politics as transactional, how did his role become so prominent in, in working with Ukraine? Sondland seemed to have 
been interested in things beyond the borders of the European Union. He would show up in Jerusalem. He would show up in Ukraine for a port visit from a U.S. Navy vessel. He would show up back in the U.S. for things that nobody was quite sure why he was there for. But with Ukraine particularly, he seems to have been part of a cadre of folks who were invited to the inauguration of the new Ukraine President Zelensky back in May. And it was really some of those meetings that he found himself in that put him in square in the middle of trying to find a way to build a new relationship between the Zelensky administration, the Trump administration. And particularly in this May timeframe of this past year, he was in the Oval Office with other people who had gone to the inauguration. And they were saying, oh, Zelensky's great. We had a great impression of him. We want to get you and him together very soon so you can start building towards goals. And Trump that particular day is in a foul mood, is talking about Ukraine, saying they're out to get me, that they tried to torpedo us in 2016. If we're going to do anything on Ukraine, he tells this group, you're going to have to deal with Rudy Giuliani. And so all of a sudden, Sondland, along with uh, Kurt Volker, the special envoy to Ukraine, and uh, Bill Taller, who's the uh, acting ambassador to Ukraine, they find themselves trying then to carry out, okay, so how do they take what the president just said and uh, go deal with Rudy Giuliani and Zelensky and figure out what is it that Giuliani wants? What's the issue here and how do they work it out between these two? We kind of see this blueprint of how Sondland has spent the past few years ingratiating the Trump administration to really kind of get the job he wants as the U.S. ambassador to the European Union. Are we going to see more of that in his testimony? You know, we have heard from current and former U.S. diplomats and foreign diplomats that Gordon Sondland thought his work on Ukraine on behalf of the president and the administration could really be kind of a, a make or break kind of moment for him. And he had begun to tell people maybe he could be the next secretary of state. It was possible that this was be the beginning of him moving higher in the administration if things went well in Ukraine. Obviously, they have not gone well. And him testifying and kind of throwing this ball back in the court of the president in the White House as far as I don't know if there's a quid pro quo or not. That's just what the president told me. Probably won't play very well with the president, but we don't know for certain how much he's going to try to defend the people above him. One of the most interesting parts of your findings to me is that you really kind of piece together this personality and this person of who Gordon Sondland is and his motivations. For you, what's been the most surprising thing that you've learned in reporting this out? One thing that was surprising to me, just to see, was to look through Gordon Sondland's Twitter and social media feeds over the last many months. And, you know, if you look at this, it was not anything that he thought he was doing wrong. He puts out there pictures of everything he's doing. He's got pictures of him thumbs up with like, you know, Andre Yermak, this Ukrainian go-between with Zelensky. And he's got pictures every time he was walking into the White House to brief the president on something over last over the past summer. There's pictures of him, you know, selfies outside the White House every time he's going to do this. Um, to now know what was taking place at each of these meetings in retrospect, it's obviously surprising that he put so many of these pictures online. But if you look at it, you must believe that for him to do this, he thought he was doing his job. And he thought he was doing what the president wanted. You know, we're going to find out how much of a problem that is. 
Aaron Davis is an investigative reporter for The Post. Gordon Sondland is scheduled to testify before Congress on Thursday. What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC, and brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And now, one more thing from reporter Keith Alexander about Rayful Edmond, the drug kingpin who ruled over Washington, D.C. from 1985 to 1989. This week, he returns to court where a judge will reconsider his life sentence. He had a following. He had a fan base. I mean, this was a young man who was 22, 23, 24 years of age. He had chauffeur-driven limousines. He would take flights to L.A., to Beverly Hills to New York just to buy suits and clothes. He would give money to Little League baseball teams. He would refurbish basketball hoops in in various neighborhoods. He would pay the rent for individuals in his neighborhood, for their their, their mothers. Even rappers, I mean, knew about him. You know, Jay-Z put him in a rap back in 1996. He was a fixture in movies. And a lot of people had, in that world, had a lot of respect for him and revered him for what he did on the streets. But he devastated the city. I came to Washington, D.C. from a small town outside of Pittsburgh. This was 1987 when I came down. And at that time, uh, Washington was known as the murder capital. It had hundreds of, of, of murders a year. And a lot of those murders were a, a result of drug dealing and drug use. We were told when we came to Howard, you know, don't go down Georgia Avenue uh, by yourself. As telling young men, don't walk down Georgia Avenue by yourself because you would become a target for people trying to rob you because they were trying to find money to buy drugs. You would hear sirens all day and all night, sirens just going off, Um, police, ambulance going off. And then also you would also come out and you would see yellow police tape, crime scenes, it was amazing to see all that. Beautiful homes, homes that are today going for millions of dollars, were vacated. People left their homes or they lost their homes because of drug use. And those homes became crack houses where people, drug users, would go in and, and, and light up pipes and smoke the, these crack rocks. Prostitution was everywhere in D.C. Women and men selling their bodies for drugs. It was all driven by one man, all driven by Rafael Edmond. He terrorized the city. That was his legacy among law enforcement, among residents, that this man's control of the city, this man's control of this drug, crack cocaine, a lot of people say he devastated the city. Devastation that has lasted for years. I mean, you had crack babies, you had people addicted to this drug, you had people losing their homes because of this drug. And that devastation literally lasted for decades. So many people have left the city because of that drug epidemic.
back in February, prosecutors basically shocked the nation when they said that they were going to agree to allow Rayful Edmond to get out of prison early. For 30 years, Edmond has been in prison, but for 20 of those years, he's been cooperating with prosecutors, helping on other cases, giving information on other drug and homicide cases. Now, we're about to go to court, where a judge is actually going to decide whether or not Edmonds should be released early from prison, either under time served, which is what Edmonds' attorney wants, or an additional, probably about another 10 years in prison, which is what prosecutors are calling for. Keith Alexander covers crime in the courts for The Post. Keith says that even if Edmund is released, he'll still have to serve prison time in Pennsylvania, where he was convicted of dealing drugs from prison. That 30-year sentence begins after his first prison term ends. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. I'm Nicole Ellis. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC, and brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC.